Ladies and gentlemen and other fellow humans, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a podcast setting a course to discuss the future of the final frontier in Star Trek Strange New Worlds, Lower Decks, Prodigy, and more. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and I'm joined by today's panel of Star Trek franchise explorers, including Rachel Clow, hey. Tyler Monaghan, hello, hello. and the amazing, the superior Cicero Holmes. The night is dark and full of terrors. <laughs> you damn right it is. <laughs> oh my God. So uh, chances are, if you're listening to this, you also listened to our previous episode where we explained that scheduling issues made us really late in covering the final few episodes of Strange New World Season 1. So this is actually the second of two episodes we're recording in a bit of a marathon in one night. So from our perspective, we just talked about uh, the, the, the very entertaining, but also emotionally gripping, uh, episode, the Elysian kingdom. So we're going to move right along pretty soon. Um, we'll all be back to talk about the season finale, uh, pretty quickly. And from there, we'll talk about all the news that came out of San Diego comic-con. And by then we should be ready to discuss, uh, Star Trek lower deck season three, which, begins just a few weeks from the time that we're talking or just under a month, I should say. Um, but since we checked in with our panelists like an hour ago, uh, <laughs> let's just jump in to our discussion right. about episode nine of Star Trek, strange new worlds, all those who wander. Some shenanigans going on with the audio there. All right. So to, to start us off, and again, this is um, uh, from a synopsis written by the fine editors over at Wikipedia. Um, they're providing the very uh, condensed uh, episode summary that we are basing our discussion around, splitting it into about four different main topics of conversation. The Enterprise is en route to Deep Space Station K7, a TOS callback when it re receives another priority assignment to investigate the missing USS Peregrine. While the Enterprise continues to K-7, Captain Pike leads an away team to an ice planet where they find the grounded Peregrine. So I guess just to kind of start off, the, the episode has a pretty slow burn, at least in terms of getting totally off the ground. You know, things are set up as kind of a by-the-numbers uh uh, issue that the crew is going to investigate. Um, and there's nothing that really that seems all that out of the ordinary, except for the fact that it doesn't seem like they can raise anybody from this down ship, which looks very, very similar to the enterprise. You know, it's that old kind of star Trek television production trope of being able to use the same sets, uh, but in a little bit of a different, uh, configuration and with some different, uh, set dressings. But, um, you know, just to start things off, we're not really given any hint of anything particularly unsettling. So I guess my question to everybody is, 
you know, you probably saw some of the previews where it seemed like things were going to move into unsettling territory. What was everybody's feelings right at the start of the episode before things kicked off in earnest? Cicero, why don't you go first? Um, you know, so one, I didn't see any of the previews, so I didn't even know what to expect. Um, two, this was the first episode of Strange New Worlds that I've watched with someone else. My nephew was in town. Oh, okay. And, and uh, he was down in the basement watching watching TV with his uncle. And uncle needed to watch Strange New Worlds because there were new episodes. So was this uh, the first so episode we, of Strange New Worlds he this, had ever seen? Yeah, and may have been the first episode of Star Trek he had oh, ever nice. seen. Like, you know, yeah, like he's seen the movies and stuff like that. But, like, as far as I know, he hasn't really watched um, the show at, the true at, test at of all. The episodic format, right? Right, right, exactly. It was, it was, a, I was experimenting on my nephew. Um, and, uh, so the, 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 the short answer is he had a blast. He enjoyed it. We watched that episode and the finale at, um, at the same time. Um, right. so, so he definitely enjoyed them. And, uh, at this point in the episode, I, I wasn't exactly sure what was going on, but I knew something was going to happen. So, so, you know, it was, it was more, I wasn't at ease because I was just waiting for the thing that reveals itself to be the crux of the problem to finally reveal itself. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Um, how about you, Ty? Did you feel like uh, this was a slow burn or what were you thinking just in terms of the way this one kicked off? Yeah, I think slow burn is a good way to describe it. I guess like I'm looking at the episode, you know, the preview snippet and the thumbnail and stuff now, and it, it is pretty clear that bad things are going to happen. But I don't know if I was super aware of that going into the episode. Um, but like, but like two things. One, I could watch everything go fine with this crew for like hours, right? Sure. Like, yeah. <laughs> like if there was like a live streaming, like you know what I mean. Subscribe now to get your like um, Enterprise After Dark subscription and just like watch the live cam of these people just like being on the bridge doing their jobs. I would pay for that subscription because I love these people. So like, uh, I was fine with things being like by the numbers, right? And, and like you know, it's gonna go bad. Like it's like oh, there's a distress call and the captain's gonna be on the away team. Like yeah, this is gonna go smoothly, right? <laughs> um, but but yeah, like I, I think too, there was like this sense of like it 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 wasn't really like zany like some of the other episodes have been when things are going smoothly. Like you know, they were kind of it was a little bit I guess light, but it it, it just you knew it was going to hit the fan. Like you just knew it was going to hit the fan. And I was just like waiting, even as the kind of the refugee characters are introduced, like, when is this really good? And then when it does, it goes so bad, so quickly. And it's just, yeah, it was, it was great. I, this was like a, a true, you know, especially after the previous episode that was so light. Um, this was, yeah, just the range of this show, right. Is, is incredible. Yeah. Rachel, what I want to throw to you is, uh, you know, this one starts off really on kind of a bright note because we see a couple of promotions. I was going to bring that up independently. Okay. Because I knew things are going to go wrong when you see people get promoted that, that you've, you've never, never seen before. <laughs> and then they're on the away team. I think you and I looked at each other. We're like, no, RIP those people. Well, <laughs> like, uh, to be fair, you were far more convinced that something terrible was going to befall these people than I was. Oh, okay. 
but maybe i just said r.i.p those people yeah i mean it's like we were like planning their funerals as soon as as soon as it was like (laughs) you got promoted along with these people whose names the audience knows and you're a person whose name the audience doesn't know like a year (laughs) sorry and you just got promoted exactly yeah sorry the party (laughs) it's a shame which feels like a conscious choice because if the original series has any semblance of reputation that survived 50 some odd years. It's uh, you know, red shirts, right? Like the, the red shirt idea is one that persists into popular consciousness so much so that it was even like a point of a joke in star Trek into darkness. Like, you know, they're like, Oh yeah. People know about this. If JJ Abrams is using it in a movie, this is a thing, <laughs> right? Um, but I guess the, the thing that immediately struck me about the beginning of this episode and really the, the true character value that came from the promotion segment is that there was a little more focus on Uhura. And that's what I find really interesting about this. And obviously, you know, there are things about the end of the episode that we'll talk about in relation to her, but um you know, I've, I've spoken before on this show and elsewhere about how, generally speaking, Ahura is a character who's been historically underutilized. You know, the, the Kelvinverse movies did some good stuff with her, um, but they also decided to take things in a little bit of a different direction with her. And they kind of made her defined by a romance with Spock. Um, which takes a, a little too much away from her in my estimation. But what I love about what Strange New Worlds is doing is that it's giving a, a greater degree of focus on a character from the original series that hasn't had this same kind of attention. And when it comes to Ahura in this episode, at the beginning at least, she kind of recoils from this promotion ceremony. She's a little bit more introverted but it's still easy for her to make friends but at the same time as we'll see later her destiny comes into play in this episode and i feel like that is just very lightly explored here in the opening moments um any thoughts on ahura and how she's set up here besides mine uh well i i mean i love the fact just like you said uh chris that that here's a character that we've known for 50 years but we've we don't know right like of the bridge crew i think well i mean you know maybe we didn't know a lot about Chekhov and sulu but we've seen them succeed in 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 their post enterprise careers Right. Um, so, you know, we've we've seen Sulu in a captain's chair and we know that Chekhov has gone off to do great things. But we don't really there's there really isn't that same thing for Uhura, um, you know, post the movies. She's still kind of sitting in the secretary's seat by the time we get to by the time we get to the end of of the the Enterprise's run. Um, so we, we don't get a lot with her. And, and like you said, in the Kelvin, in the Kelvin films, she's kind of defined by this relationship with Spock, um, which, you know, seemingly came out of nowhere, but that was the conceit that they had. And, and sure, you know, it was fine. 
Um, but it but it really didn't add anything to the character. Um, and now we're actually getting something substan- substantive uh, for Uhura. And, and through through the course of the season, I feel like we know more about her in 10 weeks than we knew about her in 50 years. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And I mean, I don't want to take away either from like, I think what the Kelvin films did with her in terms of illustrating her acumen for her job. Yes. Yes. Was great. Yes. Like she, she can pick the, uh, the very minute differences of similar languages out better than anybody. Like that's cool. You know? Right. But um, no, you're totally right. I mean, just in terms of the material that we've had with her over the course of the franchise's existence, honestly, like Picard added stuff to her later career, but we never saw it. Like Michelle right. Nichols never got a chance to play that stuff. Right. Like you're right. At the end of Star Trek six, I mean, she's still the communications officer of the enterprise. And what this episode does, which we'll talk about at the end is that it illustrates how much of a choice that is, which is cool. So, yeah, we'll leave it at that. We'll move on to uh, to Ahura uh, later in the episode, but let's move along with the plot. So uh, the away team, or the landing party, I should say, because we're in the TOS era, uh, they, they come upon this downed starship Peregrine on the surface of the ice planet after landing in the shuttlecraft, and um, they find some pretty unsettling circumstances, including several bodies but it doesn't account for the entire crew complement uh they eventually find their way inside the ship and uh hammer and ahura work together to restore the ship's systems while captain pike learns that it was carrying three refugees and this is where things take a turn one of the refugees was infected with gorn eggs which hatched with the hatchlings bursting from his body credit to ridley scott and attacking the crew. Pike's team finds the other two refugees to be the only survivors. So this is where the where it really hits the fan because we haven't seen the Gorn now for several episodes. They are being set up as probably the most defining enemies of this season of the show, uh, even just with a handful of appearances. But Laan is, of course, doing a lot to talk up uh, her trauma at the hands of the Gorn. Um, when you realize that this one was going to be a Gornisode, Rachel, uh, how did that all combine for you? Were you ready to see more of the Gorn? Were you dreading seeing more of the Gorn? Um, I don't think I had a lot of strong feelings about seeing more really? of the Gorn. I, I wouldn't say I was dreading it or particularly I wasn't like, hell yeah, Gorn. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I don't really remember how I felt in the moment. Most of what I do remember is just really enjoying the sort of alien influences Um and the sort of like well done kind of horrorness, mm-hmm. <laughs> like horror aspects of the of the plot. Yeah, uh, it was a lot more like kind of grisly and unsettling than I would expect for uh, for Star Trek. It was very with the, the eggs coming out and <laughs> people's bodies, very, uh, very intense. Doctor. What did you make of the way that it established uh, some of the particulars of Gorn reproduction? 
I mean, it was fine. It didn't bother me. So I'm not sure it's, you know, that is that how lizards reproduce? I, uh, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> I don't think it is, but I mean, I don't think it's that violent, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's like, uh, uh, there's mutations in, um, these little worms called nematodes that people use in, um, some types of research and they're called bag mutations <laughs> because the uh, they cause the vulva not to develop so the eggs can't get out of the worms and so the um, the eggs hatch within the mother and she becomes a bag of worms. <laughs> I don't like that. Star Trek is gonna have to use that at some point. Yeah, I think. And some maybe that's how Regulan bloodworms reproduce. That's a boss in Elden Ring. What do you? (laughs) There you go. Yeah. These worms are tiny. They're like the size of like half of your fingernails. Do what they did to a tardigrade. Blow it up by fifty billion times. You know, it's fine. Sea elegans. Yeah. Has a mutation that causes it not to have a vulva. It's It's fine. Please help me. Just go to Federation Space. I'm sure they'll do what they can for you. Um, Ty, in terms of the the turn that this episode took rather quickly into horror territory, um, how did you think this like haunted house on the surface of a cold alien planet came together at the at least at the beginning here? It's cool. Yeah, horror isn't like you know really one of my favorite genres or anything, but like. You know, I think I think they did it well in a way that like was, like you said, grisly, but not like I don't know. It wasn't absurd or anything. Like it still felt, uh, it still felt grounded. It it felt like the world that we know. Uh, so so I really yeah, like I I loved this episode, you know, and I was just like I was like kind of I don't know like edge of my seat is the right way to put it, but definitely like tense, you know, the whole time. Um, and just kind of like I said, just like waiting for things to go bad and like they, they just so quickly go from bad to worse. But like one thing you alluded to that I just want to uh, kind of bring forward uh, is, is like, I just loved how there's this dynamic where Pike understands that Laan has experience with the Gorn that exceeds anybody else's experience with the Gorn on, on the crew. And so he values that experience um, because of like the knowledge, right? Like the tactical edge that that gives him, but also just because like he's empathizing with a member of his crew, right? Like, and is aware that this is a traumatic situation that is hearkening back to a very traumatic situation uh, in her past. And because of that dynamic, he really tries to honor what she has to say about the situation. And she is 100%, you know, absolute, that you cannot use diplomacy with these people. Like you cannot use your nice little Starfleet uh, tactics. Um, like it's just not gonna. Like they're not gonna join the Federation. You know what I mean? Um, so like you just have to fight them and you have to run away from them and you have to survive and you have to win. And to see how Pike like tries to kind of handle like integrating that idea with like his view of the world as this episode goes on. And then like kind of as the episode concludes was just awesome. And just something that I wanted to, like I said, highlight because to me that was like the horror stuff is like neat, but that was like, to me, one of the really interesting things is like, okay, yeah. Like what does this crew do from like, what do you do with these people? You know what I mean? Like, and it's not like Star Trek has never gone there before. Like there's been species 
and enemies like this before, but um, this crew in particular, and especially, like I said, Pike, and he's, he's, he's so empathetic, right? And always so like kind of quick on his feet and able to find these different solutions. And it's like, it's not really going to work with the Gorn here. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like monolithic enemies that, uh, that crews of enterprises past, present and future have encountered, um, I guess the Borg comes to mind, but I don't think you get bitten as much when you fight the Borg. So there is well, uh, and, and the, yeah, the only one for me is like species. What is it? Eight, uh, eight two, four, eight, four, seven. seven? Eight, four, seven. Yeah. Eight, I always know the numbers, but I put them in the wrong order. But uh, <laughs> yeah, those guys. Yeah. yeah. In Star Trek Online, they were called the Undine. So they, but that's, I don't think that's canon. But yeah. still is it canon? Uh, Cicero, I don't know how much of like a horror person you are in general, but what kind of a horror person are you and how did the, the horror components come together when the threat was established for this one? Uh, so I'm, I'm not a horror person that has ironically seen probably a lot of horror films over the course of my lifetime. Um, but you know, but not like whatever I, you know, uh, not watching paranormal activity or any of those dumb movies, but, but, uh, this, this particular episode was like, Hey guys, we need, we've got 10 episodes. You know, we know, we know we're doing, uh, the, the story, the fantasy story tale, uh, you know, the fairy tale story episode eight. And then we've got lots of things in the finale. What are we going to do for episode nine? How about aliens? Okay, let's do Aliens, the Star Trek episode. And that's what we got, right? Like, we got a little girl that was able to survive um, through her, you know, survival instincts and her wits. She knows what's about to happen. She does. She's really distrustful of all the other people. You know, the only thing that was missing was somebody yelling, game over, man, and, <laughs> and them nuking it from nuking it from this from the uh from orbit it's the only Sam way to be Kirk sure came close though yes he, he came pretty yes. close to the yes he did Paxton. yeah yes yes um so yeah i mean uh, look aliens aliens is is one of the best horror slash action big blockbuster films of of in history um and uh you know, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. So, uh, aliens, Ridley Scott should be blushing right about now. Or was that, that was Cameron, right? No, no, yeah, that was Cameron. It was Cameron for, yeah. So Cameron's, Cameron's blushing right now. Um, and, uh, I mean, they did a great, they did a great job with it. It was, it was, a, it was a blast to watch a blast yeah, sure. to watch, but, but, but it was aliens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I mean, you know, I was thinking of maybe pushing back on you, but now the more I think about it, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Just because when I think about it now, like if I watch aliens now, I don't find mm -hmm. it particularly unsettling. Right. Like it's a balls to the wall action movie. The first yeah. movie. Now that's. Still oh yes. Yeah. That's, movie. that's a horror film. Absolutely. But I don't know necessarily how much I was like totally unsettled by this episode. So it does feel very aliens ish. Yeah. Um, the, when, when you do put it that way, I guess like hearing more details about the particulars of Gorn anatomy or that's, that's a little unsettling because they're right. giving a lot of new detail to 
what the Gorn is all about. Well, and, well, and and but and much like aliens, you learn more about the xenomorphs, right? Yeah, like, true. you know, um, we we get to see different versions of the same one. You know, the in the in Alien, it was literally one, yeah. and and Aliens, it was a lot of them, right? <laughs> true. <laughs> that is that is kind of what we got here with the Gorn. The funny the funny thing for me is is still. Like trying to reconcile <laughs> how Strange New Worlds has painted the Gorn versus who we knew the Gorn to be prior to this. <laughs> <In arena? laughs> yeah. Uh. And um it is it like I'm buying you know, I'm buying what they're selling. Um, but it is it'll be it'll definitely be interesting, uh, Ty, when you finally get to the episode where you get to see the Gorn. <laughs> In TOS, um, you're like, wait, these these are the same guys. Well, to to be fair, these are adolescent Gorn, not adult. Oh, sure, Gorn. right, right. So yes, they still adult have time Gorn. to grow a lot and to get a lot slower. Right. I yeah, I don't. I've only seen pictures, but like, if I don't know, if that's supposed to be funny, then Star Wars fans have a lot of explaining about transdotions to do because that's exactly <laughs> what that guy is. Right. I mean, yeah. it, I don't know. It seems fine to me. It, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's just one of the things that comes with uh, with a longstanding IP right. and, and right. The changing uh, philosophies of production and character design, but. It is fun to watch them back to back, you know, and realize that, you know, especially, and I know I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but by the time that we finish the season finale, you know, that goes into, for all intents and purposes, a definitive TOS episode, um, there is the semblance that in terms of the effect on the continuity and the canon, events are in canon but aesthetics aren't necessarily right you know? right so but i mean the, it's inevitable to draw those comparisons especially as fans of the franchise you know yeah i yeah. think we'd be better off if we all agreed on that you know aesthetics shouldn't care like you know if that was right, just a right. thing we all yeah. agreed when, when yes, movies right, in course. the same franchise right. come out 40 years apart that should just be a thing we can all overlook sorry rachel <laughs> i mean i th- i think that like the idea in arena is that the gourd is supposed to be really terrifying and intimidating it's just in the 60s the way that you rendered that was like was like that was a really big dude that was really it was kind of slow but was really big and like a wizard man like yeah i mean tos notoriously had a bit of a shoestring budget and i feel like if you gave the script for arena to the to the strange new worlds production team sure they would block that scene totally differently like right. it's a long shot say. where you see the gorn just like kind of lumber into frame <laughs> a modern director would like be up close and i mean it would be a visual effect shot now but like the framing would be totally different and uh a lot of the other surrounding elements would be totally different i mean i would love to watch maybe it's out there somewhere but like you know a documentary of like a a visual effects or a costume designer you know on a show with a budget like the original series from that era just being on the set and seeing what the pro like like we're so spoiled right like they 
this this Gorn episode from the arena looks like they probably found some old mascot, you know, uh, <laughs> costume from from like a local community college that they were able to get secondhand or so. And and like we were just talking in the last episode about reusing sets over and over again from um, the the motion picture and stuff like that. And and just like the level of visual like quality, uh, we we get a new costume basically every two weeks now like a whole new right. set of costumes in, in the right. star trek universe like every, every right. couple of episodes like you know we're just so like the level of uh what's put into um you know everything from <clears throat> the sets all the way down to the props and then of course like with what you can do with like the space battles and stuff with with special effects is just like it is pretty just um We've just talked about this a lot, but it's like such a great time to be a Star Trek fan, right? Like, even if you don't like 80% of what they're putting out, that still leaves you with this like incredible bounty of like, of like theater, theatrical film quality production Star Trek. It's awesome. Yeah. Or in some cases beyond theatrical film quality, you know, I mean, it's uh... totally the investment level is, is really visible. And I mean, I talked before, like when discovery started, about how I wanted the studio to show more confidence in the franchise. They're doing it now, you know, they're doing it by having as much, uh, as, as much new material as they have. And in such, uh, diverse genres as they're doing, you know, like there's a star Trek, uh, quote unquote, traditional show. There's like a hardcore drama. There's a comedy animated show. There's an adventurous CGI anime. There's just, there's a lot here. Right. And it's it's a good time to be a fan. Um, well, let's let's move along. So, one of the uh, two refugees, Buckley, is also infected with Gorn eggs, and the hatchlings burst out. They attack the team, but they also fight each other until only the strongest hatchling is left. The team form a successful plan to kill the hatchling using cold temperatures from the ship's environment controls. <sighs> but not before Hemmer is infected. Ugh. So all of a sudden, very quickly, you know, like I think the episode does a really good job of starting out on a bit of an adventurous note. Then it dives into like the depths of horror before becoming a little bit more adventurous but then all of a sudden, like the all of the oxygen just seems sucked out of the episode because of the realization about what has now happened to the Enterprise's chief engineer. Um, Cicero, in the last episode, you talked a lot about everything that Hemmer brings to the table of the cast. Um, I guess, first of all, what do you make of this moment? But also, too, without knowing how the episode ends, were you pretty sure that they were actually going to go there? When he got infected, I was like, no, it was heartbreaking, right? Because, you know, I, I, I think up until the end, I was hoping for something, you know, some kind of hand-wavy thing for them to science their way out of letting Hemmer die. Um, but, but, you know, but all signs pointed to that being exactly what they had to do. And 
Um, it was, it, I mean, it was devastating. I was devastated because I like just what, what a great character. What a great character. It is such a great loss to, uh, to lose that, that actor, to lose that character. Because again, you know, up until the end, it, every scene was better because Hammer was in it. Yeah. I mean, I just want to briefly say too, that they did a really good job of um, starting an emotional thread immediately when Hammer lands on the planet, because you could tell how happy he is and he breathes in the air and he just goes, just like Andoria, you know, it's just like home. Um, and then of course there will be a payoff to that later. Right. Um, Rachel in the moment, um, were you pretty sure about what Hammer's fate was going to be? What did you make of this revelation that he's infected? Yeah, I was the same as Cicero. I was like, well, they're, they're going to find a way to stop it, right? Right? Right, guys? <laughs> <laughs> and then until the moment when he dies, I was like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, I was really sad, really heartbroken, as Cicero said. and Just, it was very shocking that they killed off a member of the main crew and one who was kind of like had those data vibes you know where he's saving the crew i'm like what's gonna happen to them now is he a highlight for you over the course of the season yeah i really you know one of my favorite moments of the whole season was him uh you know trying to like beam the star aboard or whatever (laughs) so he can feel its radiance on his skin um (laughs) That, yeah, that's one of my favorite points. So, yeah, I was just really upset about it. Um, and I feel like the only way that I've been able to sort of cope is like, I'm like, well, they can have a new chief engineer who will go to the pound and get a new chief engineer. <laughs> and yeah, who can be a new interesting character next season, maybe. Um and it can be like TNG where the chief engineer keeps rotating every episode. <laughs> well, <laughs> there, there was in that episode, I don't know if you guys remember, but uh, um, for, through the Jeffries tube, you hear a very Scottish. Oh, that's in the uh, next one. Oh, is, is that in the, in the final episode? That's in the finale. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. I'm he's already I'm there by that point. Right. You know? Yeah. But we will yeah. talk about that when the time yes. comes. Most definitely. Yeah. Oh, this. Oh, yeah. That's right. In this episode, the Jeffries tubes are only used for murder. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ty, one of the things that I want to throw to you, um, particularly because, as you mentioned before, very recently, in fact, you don't have an overriding affinity for the TOS characters. So, I guess what I'm curious about from your perspective. Um, because it certainly affects me being a TOS fan, but in terms of how you see things, the relationship between Hemmer and Ahura gets a lot of play over the course of really the, the season as a whole, but everything kind of comes home to roost here. Was that sufficiently built up for you to invest in that and in sort of the guidance that he's trying to impart on her uh, over the course of this episode? Uh, I mean, I guess the answer is yes, because like I was like, there were a good handful of episodes this season that Hemmer just was not in. Um, 
And like, I was really missing him for those episodes. Right. And so to me, I think like, you know, like Rachel has mentioned a couple times, Hammer has this kind of specific personality that kind of seems to fill a role on the ship. And I think there's like a lot of overlap with Spock there. And so like, you know, it makes sense that Uhura has like, right. The most substantial conversation she has about like her future in Starfleet happened with Spock and with Hammer. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah. And like there, you know, that, that, uh, there's a really memorable scene where Hammer and Uhura are working together, um, and Hemmer's hand is trapped. And so he has to talk Uhura through some, I forget exactly what they're doing, but some engineering stuff. Um, and, and like, yeah, that was like a partnership that just felt great. Like it felt very Star Trek, right? Cause you can tell like, there's obviously like a, there's a generational difference, but there's like a species difference. And just from the moment those two met, there was this, uh, it, very just interesting, like not quite adversarial, but like a little bit of a, a tension, but like a positive collegial competitiveness or something like that. Right. Like it, it felt You're like almost they were like siblings. Yeah, yeah, like like they were really good for each other, you know. I guess is the right. simplest way to put it. Um, and so, yeah, gosh, it was just like I, the show did a good job of making me feel a sense of loss. I will put it that way. Like, you know, like when he gets infected, like to me, it's like when you're when you're baking something and you realize partway through that you have like forgotten the crucial ingredient. You're like, oh man, I totally didn't put any like eggs in here or something. And you're like, I, I don't know. Like, I'm going to keep going and like, maybe it'll turn out okay. But like, I think this is bad. Like, right. and, and then, you're, oh yeah, it was bad. Like, like, yeah. that, like, so I didn't have as much hope as it sounds like Rachel and Cicero, you guys maybe did. I was, I was more just like, uh, okay, I, I guess if there's a way for this to work out, I'll take it. But I don't think there's a way for this to work out. Oh, yeah. it was brutal. And it was such a good example of like, the, like what I talked about before with like the, you can't use diplomacy with the Gorn and stuff. And like, Chris, you talked about that arc of like going from adventurous to kind of like hammers getting infected, like really sucking the oxygen out of the room. And it was such a good, like, yeah, this is why we don't like, do the cowboy like run in with guns and like that's our first solution in star trek land because like that part is fun but then when your friend dies that part is horrible and like it's not you know what i mean like it's worth doing what you can to avoid that outcome and it's a tragedy that in this case we couldn't you know we couldn't figure out a way um and and so yeah just like uh for for whatever it's worth as much as you can say this yeah it's like a a, a character uh loss that serves a role, you know, in like, I don't know, defining who, who this crew is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's very well said. I, I really do believe that Hemmer is the breakout character of this show because I mean, honestly, a lot of pre-existing Star Trek fans are naturally going to be excited by the appearance of legacy characters, you know, and the fact that they're embodied by such great performers just makes it all the easier. And of course we got our first look at that in the second season of discovery, but they've just taken things uh, really far in a, in a very positive direction. But Hammer, um, I, I feel anyway, more than any of the other new characters that this show has introduced helps to illustrate just how strong this writer's room is at getting audiences invested in a new character, right? Because 
I'm not going to say that there isn't some work that was done just by, uh, by the nature of his circumstances, like being on the enterprise helps having this sort of mentor relationship to a TOS character helps having kind of a quasi friendship with arguably the most important character in the entirety of the franchise helps, but he still shines through in a way that you might not necessarily have expected. And it's not that he is even all that flashy, like Laan is reserved. Hemmer is arguably just as, if not maybe even more reserved, except when maybe in an altered state, but his quiet assuredness and his strong belief in like pacifism, even though he has a countenance that doesn't seem like that of a pacifist. Um, this is just such a incredibly well-defined guy. And, um, I got to admit that I didn't think that they, I wasn't worried at the moment. Like it was infected. Oh, it's a wrinkle in the episode. How are they going to get out of this one? I worry didn't enter my mind. Um, so by the time we get to the end, which we'll talk about shortly, um, it was something else, but I do want to pivot things a little bit more because let's go from the breakout new character to the most longstanding character. Because I feel like Spock has a pretty incredible set of moments in this episode too. And it's a really interesting look at where he is in his life because as embedded as I am in, in, in just like as embedded as my mind is, I should say in, in Star Trek canon and Star Trek lore with Spock being arguably one of my two favorite characters in all of fiction um, this presents a really unique and interesting moment for his life because throughout TOS, he leans so hard into the Vulcan philosophy. He is, you know, the, the most stoic that he ever is throughout the entirety of the franchise. Um, and then, you know, this show decides to take the wrinkle of a smile in the cage and expand it out to, well, he's developing, you know, he's, he's still trying to decide between where to balance his human and Vulcan halves before, you know, ultimately making the conclusions that he does later in his life. But here in this episode, Spock is confronted by such horrifying circumstances and losses that instead of despairing, he leans extremely hard into outright rage and hostility in a way that I don't think has ever really been sufficiently explored with him before. Um, Cicero, when it comes to Spock in this episode, were you, did you think this was fair game? Did you think that, um, this was surprising? How did you think that this came together in terms of what it says about Spock's journey? It, it was, it, it felt authentic. Um, if, 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 you know, if that makes any sense, um, didn't, didn't, something happened with Tuvok where he was raging. It wasn't like Ponfar or something like that, where he was like, all. there was a moment where, yeah, he, he was going through Ponfar and he obviously wasn't anywhere close to his wife and he was trying to figure out a way to help him out. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he certainly leaned into, yeah. (laughs) Right. <laughs> I mean, there, Tuvok certainly leaned into like his Vulcan base 
impulses several times over the course of Voyager. Right, right. So, and, and, you know, and weren't they, I mean, they were, uh, not barbaric, but, but primitive, I guess, or primal, right? It it Um, seems like Vulcans might agree with you about barbarism, but yeah. Um, but you know, so like, uh, very primal. And so, so I felt like even, even as Spock was leaning into, uh, human style emotions, he was still leaning into them as a Vulcan would with, with, you know, with the levels of, of, uh, repress rage that that Vulcans have right like that you know and a thing that they mention in the episode is uh, that that Spock mentions in the episode is that that you know you know Vulcans don't just not have emotions they repress those emotions um so they're you know they're always there but the but you know a, a good Vulcan's job is to keep them at bay and and you know if you if you uh Bruce Banner this shit and you're always angry right like you can you can you can let go of them for us for a little bit so i i kind of felt like while that was that you know you could look at that as spock grabbing from his human you know from his human side it was also spock grabbing from his vulcan side and and dealing with that conflict but i think i think what we got to see was ethan peck actually giving us that conflict, right? So that by the time we get to the end of the episode and he has that moment with, uh, and I think, I think I'm remembering this correctly, but he has that moment with nurse chapel. It's, it's like, if that also felt authentic, it also felt earned, um, that, you know, that he went through the stuff and, and, and that he came to, he came to realize uh, what we had are already realized, and I think you know, Ty mentioned it several episodes ago, where we were talking about that love triangle, and and that two thirds of the people in that love triangle knew that that everyone was lying, but the person that didn't really know it, what indeed turned out to be Spock, and he finally figured it out. Yeah, I mean, Nurse Chapel kind of coaching him through the particulars of these emotions and kind of encouraging him in some respect, because she, yeah. I think she thinks that it's going to be cathartic for him eventually, but um, no, it's, it's very well taken. Rachel, what did you make of Spock getting a bit um, ragey over the course of this one? I, I'm having trouble formulating a response because I was just sort of like, yeah, go, buddy. <laughs> you were rooting for him to, to take it to him, huh? I don't know. I mean, it seemed appropriate for this situation. Um, he was clearly kind of traumatized by how the Gorn had viciously dispatched the, the, the recently promoted officers, <laughs> right? Right, yeah. Um. Yeah, I thought it was something that was seemed like it was setting up more, you know, character development f- development for him down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm interested to see where it goes, but I wasn't like offended by it or Well, no, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> like... just, just in terms of you your understanding of who Spock is. Uh, 
did you think that this added to uh like it positively added to your perception of his journey as you understand it yeah i think so but i think there's going to i think they're going to build on it more mm-hmm. i guess i'm i'm hesitant to like make any strong judgments at this point because it feels like they're setting up more of an arc for him and how he and Tapring kind of go draw apart more and, mm-hmm. and these kinds of things. Yeah, so. sure. Ty, what about you? Um, Peck is your Spock, as you said. Um, and uh, when it comes to seeing the, the turmoil that this situation puts him in, how does this combine into the character as you understand him? Yeah, it's cool. I really like seeing this stuff. There's like strong like Hulk vibes with him in Chapel of like, oh, you got to do this thing and it might not be good for you, but it's going to be, you know, it's, it's very high utility. So like we need you to do it anyway. Um, but like, yeah, I really like, I think this is cool. Like, you know, sometimes I'm not as into like the specific like races and, and like, you know, alternate history of Star Trek. But this is one thing like with the Vulcans, that I, I really appreciate. I like when they delve into, and I think they do it in a thoughtful way of like, what is the role of like emotion, right? And like, just what I was saying earlier of like in, in uh, you know, an organization um, like Starfleet or like a, like, uh, you know, a political organization like the Federation of Planets, um, you, uh, you know, you, you, you want to be dispassionate and you want to be able to negotiate, but there are like, the world isn't ideal. Right. And sometimes it calls for like, sometimes we see multiple times in this episode where emotion is super useful and it kind of saves people's lives. Um, but you don't want to be in that situation in the first place. And so it's like interesting. Like, I think in some ways, like the humans are like a little better equipped, right? Like they can, they can rely on those bursts of emotion to kind of like supplement their actions, like when, when needed, Whereas the Vulcans kind of like you see them at like a disadvantage when stuff hits the fan, like sometimes because they right like here it was like almost this traumatic thing for him to let that emotion in. And, and um, you know, I, I'm really yeah, I, I, I like it. I'm interested to see it develop. And like, it's cool for me to think of like I hadn't I hadn't really thought about it, Chris, but like this could be, you know, one of many kind of like traumas around letting his emotions loose that we kind of witness in this, in this series that, that does kind of cause him to eventually decide that, Hey, as I continue to develop as a person, I'm going to kind of keep moving that needle toward the um, emotionless side. Right. And toward the more Vulcan side of my nature toward the Spock that we see on the original series. And so I think it's just a really cool thing to explore. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, before Strange New Worlds and Discovery, certainly, my perception of Spock's journey is always that, well, from a young age, he just leans hard into his Vulcan mm-hmm. lineage. Right, right. And um, it really takes dying for him to realize the importance of serving both sides of himself. And then by the time we see him in the next generation and certainly in the the first kelvin film uh he's he's at peace he he has laid down the sword between both halves and has completely accepted uh both of those competing sides and he is not interested in in having them compete it's just all it's all him like he is the 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 human vulcan and he gives equal and proper service to both sides of himself 
Um, he's he's a far cry from the guy who in the original series seemed insulted about being compared to humans, although he still made jokes about that like in, in later life. But then this comes along and it shows, oh, there was turmoil in the other direction too. Like um, that he probably, like there's something, my perception right now is that this takes place and by the time we do get to the TOS time frame, he reasons that it's necessary to push hard into the Vulcan side. So whether or not we reach a bit of a breaking point before he makes that eventual realization will be really interesting to see. Um, but it's all cool. And again, it all feeds into one of the great strengths of this franchise in telling a story with one character over five decades. Like you don't get this from really anything else. You certainly don't get it from other popular IP, at least to this degree, you know? Um, so yeah. Another thing that's been cool about it to see is like thinking back to a few episodes ago with the, uh, to Pring where she was like, Oh, let's explore, you know, the, your human side. And I've been like reading this stuff and, and he was sort of like, uh, hold on. Like maybe we should do that together. <laughs> or like, but, but, uh, my point is like, he sort of, whether he recognized it or not, he sort of intuited in that moment. Like I'm the only person that can decide for me what the kind of like pace and path for me is as i navigate these like kind of different parts of my identity and i figure out you know how exactly those pieces like fit together and that's like a super like you can you know drop in a, a million different things in in our everyday lives uh for that and it's just cool right like that recognition that yeah it's okay like sometimes you need to push it away sometimes you need to pull it into yourself and that's all like still you right like i don't think anything we see spock do across any of what we're talking about is like inauthentic or like he's not trying to fool anybody right um if there's anybody he's ever trying to fool it's like himself like we mentioned but it's just it's cool to see star trek so thoughtfully just show that like yeah like there can be nuance like it's not always like life isn't always a straight line of like you start out not knowing who you are and then you figure out who you are. Like sometimes it's a lot more complicated than that. It's really cool to see. Yeah. And I mean, Spock goes through like three human life lifetimes essentially mm. before he's totally settled mm -hmm. with who he is. Um, but I mean, and it's also just cool to me that this character who's introduced or who's brought to life, at least in 1964 is still a vehicle for these kinds of conversations. I just, it's one of the reasons I love Spock as much as I do. Um, but let's, uh, let, let's finish off the, the episode. So Hemmer encourages Ahura to remain in Starfleet before throwing himself from the ship. So he will die in the cold along with the Gorn inside of him. After the crew mourns Hemmer, La'an Noonien Singh takes a leave of absence to help the last refugee find her family. And the episode ends with Ahura contemplating what Hemmer told her and there's a lingering shot of her looking at the position that she will occupy on the bridge of the enterprise for years to come. Like, as if she has finally found a sense of belonging that she was looking for. It's at least starting to put it in that, uh, in that direction. Um, I actually want to end the discussion of the episode right there because uh, pedantic continuity time, I'm not going to do the music, but it, it kind of feeds into the discussion. And I think we can talk about that a little bit before we dismiss here. So uh, again, from the fine editors at memory alpha, this episode marks the fourth occasion in which a star Trek series has killed off 
one of its main characters in its first season. The first instance, of course, was the Next Generation Season 1 episode Skin of Evil, in which Lieutenant Tasha Yar was killed by the entity known as Armus. Um, it didn't follow again in the second instance until the late Season 1 episode of Star Trek Discovery, What's Past is Prologue, with the Mirror Universe rendition of Captain Gabriel Lorca uh, coming to a rather grisly end, um, I'm sure to the satisfaction of everybody except me. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, the last instance was played for laughs. The third instance was the Lower Deck Season 1 finale, No Small Parts, in which Lieutenant Shax was killed in a battle against the pack led although Shax was later resurrected in the second season, uh, which was hilarious, right? Yes. Um, yeah. But this is only the fourth time this has happened in the entirety of the franchise. And when looking at those other deaths, like obviously Shax is kind of in a class unto himself. And Lorca was the enemy of the season uh, when it comes to Discovery season one. But Tasha Yar, like if I'm comparing Hammer and Tasha Yar, I can't help it, you guys. I feel more for Hemmer. I feel like Hemmer's death is far more powerful. And probably, I don't know, Tasha's was, like, the point of it seemed to be that it was senseless. It was really abrupt. Um, but Hemmer's was actually pretty unexpected, at least for me in the moment. You know, I didn't see, I didn't think that they would go here, but they did. Um. I guess I want to add, because all of you guys are familiar with TNG. So, Rachel, I want to throw it to you first. When you look at how effectively TNG built up Tasha Yar over the course of that first season until she died, and it's a direct comparison with Hemmer in the same situation, who do you care more about? Well, obviously Hemmer. I don't know I... if it's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Hemmer. Um... I don't know why. I I mean, obviously, I think there were more episodes before Tasha died, for sure. Yeah, because the season was um, like 24, 26 for yeah. season yeah. of TNG. But I feel like just Hemmer makes more of an impression than Tasha. Um, she doesn't have a lot of time in TNG, I guess, or isn't as distinctive, maybe. And I mean... But they tried. Yeah, they tried, but obviously not that much because the actress was unsatisfied. Crosby was right, very, yeah. uh, she was very uh, unsatisfied with what was going on. Right. Um, I mean, I I just felt like this was a little bit more poignant than the uh, Windows, you know, Windows background funeral that she gets <laughs> in the holodeck yeah. yeah in the holodeck um where they're sort of i don't know i feel like that's a little bit more of like telling not showing how you feel about it um and and of course armis is ridiculous <laughs> um and i i have a soft spot for armis as it i think of twitter as armis yeah um because it is basically the same thing. The coagulation of awfulness, yeah. Yeah, and it's just like, like, why, why are you hurting us? Because I wish it. Like, that's, 
<laughs> that's pretty much how I like. I have a picture of sort of the collective hive mind of Twitter of just like sort of harming people. Okay, well, I got another question um, then. Was this the right choice? Killing Hammer. I don't know. I mean, we'll see how it goes. I mean, they're, it seems like they're doing it to bring Scotty on. Like you mentioned. I don't think Scotty's going to be around. I mean, I would like it if it's a cool new character, cool new but chief engineer just, character. I, but, but if they bring Scotty, I might be a little disappointed because it seems like they just want to bring on a lot of legacy characters instead. I don't of think Scotty's going to be in season two, but you're, you're overthinking it. I'm talking about just your journey <laughs> with Hemmer. He's gone now. Considering the emotional payoff for this episode specifically and the season as a whole, was it the right dramatic choice? Yeah, I guess so. Okay. I mean, I think it was well done. Okay. Uh, I wish there was more with him, but, you know, they'll probably make a book I can read. So. There you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Most likely. Uh, Cicero, same yeah. series of questions to you. A comparison of how well Hammer was built up versus Tasha Yar, and also was this the right choice, especially considering how much you like this character? Well, um, so, the, you know, the problem with Tasha Yar was I think they just didn't know what to do with the character. She was either fighting or fornicating throughout throughout the first season, you know. And, and while I, it was cool to have a chief security officer as a woman— Right. And that was, you know, that was definitely something in retrospectives that, that they that they talked about. Um, clearly, there were problems with Denise Crosby and and the and the production team. I don't know, whomever, somebody. Uh, and and also like, eh, you know, Tashiar wasn't that interesting. I feel like we knew more about Hammer than we did Tashiar. In fact, Denise Crosby was more memorable to me in the characters she played after Tasha died, sure. Tasha's daughter. And, you know, and so is, maybe this comparison is unfair then, because I think you're right. Like the writers of strange new worlds clearly had a far greater idea of where they wanted to take Hammer when yes. compared with the creative team of the next generation yes. for Tasha. Yes. 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 But, but, you know, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's definitely worth discussing because, because it's notable just for that reason, right? Like the very first time a main character on a season of Star Trek died in the first season was, was Tasha Yar. Um, so, you know, just, you know, just from that perspective is, it's pretty, pretty big. Sure. Um, and, She's the one besides I'm assuming I'm assuming the hammer will also she's the only one that stayed dead. Um, that was like a main character that wasn't a villain, right? Lorca is dead. Maybe Prime Lorca is coming back because Chris has wished upon many, Bang many stars. Bang the right? uh, <laughs> like Kenneth Mitchell, who played call in in Discovery season one. Um, right. Sounds like Bruce Horak is going to be back, just not as okay. Hammer. Oh, OK. So, All right. Well, yeah. So, you so, know, so it could be, he could, maybe he could be the new Jeffrey Combs. There you uh, go. <laughs> so um, then inevitably, you know, second question, considering the emotional impact, was this the right dramatic yeah, it, choice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, listen, the, the fact is we've been talking about it for 20 minutes, right? Like, it, you know, of course, of course it was the right, it was the right decision. It, it you know, it, it affected us emotionally and, and we felt that loss, right? It had, it had weight and gravity. 
I mean, far more weight and gravity than than the loss of Tasha Yar, right? Like it was just a weird thing and it kind of sucked. Like, uh. um, but we then we got Worf, right? We got Worf in that role, and and that was far greater um, in terms of its impact. No, you know, no disrespect to Tasha uh, to Denise Crosby, but um, but far greater in its impact and and you know the directions and the things that they could do with that character than what they did with with Tasha Yar. So. Um, yeah, uh, Hemmer, Hemmer's loss will be felt, um, for a while and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get some, you know, memories of Hemmer in, in season two with, with, uh, you know, different members of the crew. Hey, that would be cool. Yeah. Uh, Ty, you know, round us out. It was, do you think this was the right choice and do you lament the stories with Hemmer we will not get? Yeah. I of course I lament the stories with Hemmer that we will not get, um, and that is what makes it the right choice. I've seen some people talking about how oh it's like you had this character his, his potential was untapped. That's the point. Like death is right. like you can't have every character's death be like this culmination of this master plan because that's not how life works. Sometimes death is arbitrary and it sucks and it's just it's a part of life and you just have to get through it right and like this this depicts that um and i will even like i have an even hotter take that i I won't dwell on but which is that like armis is an incredible villain uh i think i think it's naive to think that good art is a product of like or good storytelling is always just the product of like purely somebody uh coming up with like a brilliant story in their mind i think the best like stories and the most memorable stories are a product of artistic vision combined with weird limitations like an actor that doesn't get along with the production team or whatever (laughs) and then people who execute on that and are able to combine their vision and those limitations to come up with something memorable you use the word senseless to describe armis that is the point uh, I remember Tasha Yar's death better than almost any other moment in TNG history. Uh, having watched the show a, a few other times, like the you know the image in my mind of that is so clear because you do feel so slapped in the face by it. And sometimes <laughs> that's that's how life makes you feel. Gosh darn it! Um, and so yeah, like I thought it was like just just brutal that we lost Hammer, um, but just like it's such a you know, just like a bold like choice for the show that that totally worked, um, and yeah, I'm I'm really gonna gonna miss the guy, um, and maybe you know I could I could easily see you know who knows where we go from here with the show, but I could definitely see myself in in like a few years down the road being like, let's watch some season one, let's watch one of the ones with Hemmer. You remember Hemmer? Yeah, you know, and like really looking back fondly because like yeah, he's just a really cool character. Yeah, sure. You know, maybe Benioff and Weiss were Tasha Yard death fans. Maybe that's where they get all their <laughs> desires to senselessly. And- no, that was all George, no, man. That was George R. R. Martin. Yeah, that's George R. R. Martin. And they're not, they wouldn't watch TNG because they don't like things with like lessons. And stuff. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, man. Well, uh, Yes, sad sad that we lost Hemmer, but I agree with you guys. I mean, I think it was a, a, a worthy dramatic exercise, and it certainly does um, come with uh, 
a, a, a heightened sense of caution for the rest of this show. Um, this death probably made me more on edge in the season finale than anything. Um, obviously there are characters who have plot armor, but there are some that don't. And, um, in a weird way that might come home to roost at the end of the season finale, but we'll explore that when the time comes. But, um, no, excellent discussion as always, but I think that is going to do it for episode number 84 of discovery debrief. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like, and follow us on our social media channels. And if you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it. If you wrote a review for the show, wherever you found it, it only takes a minute and let us know you wrote one. And we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter or on Armus at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Armus handles. And feel free to send us questions through Twitter or Armus or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes. And be sure to join us next time as we discuss the final adventure of the season for the Starship Enterprise. As always, though, until we meet again, please go boldly, my friends. (laughs) 